Shall we pray as we stand? Father God, we pray that you would help us to understand more of your grace tonight. Uh, Father, we would understand more of the great gospel which you have called us into. And Father, would you help us to be uh, following you more nearly and trusting you and holding firm to you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a real uh, pleasure uh, to be here in the Winter Music Conference. Uh, I do find it uh, rather ironic that I'm uh, here in some ways because I'm the most unmusical person I think you could possibly find. Um, although there is a, I do sometimes have this imagining when I'm sitting in church. Well, two things I actually imagine uh, when I'm in church. Uh, one of them is I always imagine you know, if the drummer collapsed on the way up to start playing the drums, uh, then I could just uh, stand up and pick up the sticks and then just start uh, playing myself and everybody would be amazed. Um, the other thing, this is maybe a bit more embarrassing, but I reckon I'm not the only one who sometimes imagines this. I imagine a disaster happening in church. Or maybe there's somebody, uh, somebody coming in uh, to start attacking people in the church and I'm the one who's going to be who saves them. Now, some of the guys think this as well, don't they? Does anybody else think this? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, somebody at the north front's nodding. Yeah, more. I'm not the only person who does this. Or the, the roof starts falling in and I'm the one who manages to hold it up and protect everybody <laughs> while they escape. Now, those things are ridiculous. But there are things which we strive after which are a bit more real. Do you not find that? There's things that we strive after. Some people just strive to keep afloat and that's what takes up all their energies and all their thinkings. Uh, others are striving uh, for promotion. For some of you, it may be academic excellence. Uh, for many of us, though, there's lots of different things which we're striving after, not just the one uh, thing. You know, so we strive after work. Um, and I was talking over, over um, dinner with somebody saying, the advent of internet and internet on your phone means that actually often we're never away from work, are we? So you get uh, emails on your phone, which you then reply to in the evenings and at the weekends. And so we're uh, striving on that all the time. Uh, we strive for good leisure time. You, know, you want to relax and enjoy yourself. Uh, whether that's having space to do nothing or space to go to the cinema or to do craft or to eat meals or to watch gigs or to love your husband and wife well. Uh, For many of us, we strive to be good parents. Uh, We don't want our children to miss out, so we take them to swimming lessons and then we take them to beavers and then to cubs and then to scouts. And uh, we don't want them to miss out at church either, so we take them to the youth club, take the the younger ones, go at 5.15 and then the older one goes at 6.15. And then... We want them to practice their instruments so that they can play those well. And they all play more than one instrument. And so we are on at them to do that. We're on at them to do their homework as well. Striving after to be good parents. And then we strive for our health. You know, to burn off those calories from the meal out that we have. And so we go to the gym. Or you take up a particular challenge like doing a big long bike ride which will keep you motivated. And then we see, oh, we need to be helping others. And so we are striving after doing that as well, uh, to be good friends, to be looking after people and to listening to them and spending time with them. And do you not feel sometimes that because we strive after so many different things, actually you end up enjoying none of them? We feel overwhelmed by those things such that actually we just don't feel happy in doing any of them. You see, all those different things that we strive after rob us of any joy and happiness. Rob us of our ability to be thankful. Now, it's not that any of those things in and of themselves is sinful. 
It's just that we have got so many of them and we think they should be be providing us with more joy and happiness. We think those things should be making us happy, providing us more. We think we deserve something from them. So I should be able to do everything I want to do and be able to get eight hours sleep a night. And I wonder whether you feel this then when you come to church on a Sunday, maybe you're leading uh, the band, and as you look out at everybody in the congregation, faces seem flat. Uh, Do you see that joy and the lack of joy and happiness seems to reflect itself often in the faces of the congregations which we serve? Uh, Joyless countenances looking back at us as we sing the praise of God. Now, a few years ago, I remember a student coming and speaking to me about this. He was really quite concerned about it. He says, what are we going to do about this? The fact that it seems that people in our congregation at Christchurch Fullwood are just lacking in joy and happiness. Now, he was right. There did seem to be a problem at times. And you can say it doesn't always have to show in the faces. People can have joy in their hearts and it doesn't show in their faces. All the rest of it. And yet often, if you're honest, you recognise it, don't you? We have a tendency to be lacking in joy and happiness when we come to church. And as he said that to me and asked what we're going to do about it, it made me think about my own life. It made me realise that I I could see quite clearly at that point that my life wasn't full of joy and happiness in the gospel. And yet think what the Bible says at 1 Thessalonians 5.15. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now recently we've been studying Luke's gospel and as I've been studying through Luke's gospel you see time and time again people encounter the Lord Jesus and they go away praising God. They encounter Jesus and they go away filled with hearts of praise. You see do those things embarrass you slightly as you realise actually it doesn't describe us as Christians often full of joy and happiness. Now, my friend wanted to know what we were going to do about it. Now, what were we going to do about the joyless, thankless hearts in our congregation? Was what he was asking me. And it's a great question to ask. What are we going to do about it? You see, I reckon it would probably be fairly easy to generate joyful hearts in all sorts of different ways. But I could make it a bit more personal. How are you going to generate a joyful, happy heart in yourself? You see, it's easy, I think, probably for us to create what looks like joy and happiness and yet actually isn't that. You know, something like joy and happiness which is only skin deep, all froth and bubble. Now, the opposite danger, when we don't want to have this froth and bubble, the opposite danger is that we then eschew any sort of emotion in our Christian lives. And yet listen to this uh, striking quote from Jonathan Edwards. I love this book. It's called The Religious Affections. Um, And on the front of the book, he looks like the most miserable person ever. (laughs) You think they could have chosen a better picture. Uh, But Jonathan Edwards in this book speaks of uh, what he calls religious affections. Now he he speaks of things. He means the the acts of our will, the way that we respond to things. Uh, So it includes love and compassion and thankfulness and joy and mourning and sadness. All those different things which should be uh, reflected in our lives. And he says this, 
Uh, there are false affections and there are true. A man having much affection does not prove that, that he has any true religion. Now when he speaks of true religion there, he's speaking in a positive sense. We often, when we hear the word religion now, we think of it negatively. But he's meaning a true Christianity. He says, a man having much affection does not prove he has any true religion. But if he has no affection, it proves that he has no true religion. The right way is not to reject all affections nor to approve all, but to distinguish between affections, approving some and rejecting others, separating between the wheat and the chaff, the gold and the dross, the precious and the vile. You see, what we want to develop, isn't it, in our hearts, is a real and genuine joyfulness. We want to be generating something, not by any means possible, but by generating something in our hearts which is real and lasting and true. And those kind of affections are only going to be generated through the gospel. Which is why it drew me to Colossians when, that, when my friend asked me those questions. You see, because it's as coming to the gospel that we start to see why we should be thankful. And Colossians has much to say about thankful. Let me just, thankfulness, let me just take you through a few verses in Colossians. If you've got a Bible, this will be easier than if you've just got your, um, your sheet. You see, the, Colossians has got much to say about thankfulness. Now you see it right at the start, and we're going to think about this one in, in a few moments. We have Paul's example. Verse three, we always thank God. And he explains what his thankfulness is all about. But then look at the end of verse 11. Paul says, knowing God better will lead to, right at the end of verse 11, joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Then look at what is the the theme sentence for the whole letter in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Where Paul says, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught. And then the bit that I think people often miss, and overflowing with thankfulness. Basic Christian living should be characterized by thankfulness, says Paul. Thankfulness will come up again in chapter 3, in verse 15. He says simply there, and be thankful. This is underlined as he speaks then of singing songs with gratitude in your hearts in the very next verse. And then in verse 17 we read, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then into chapter 4, in verse 2, we say, Paul saying, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. You see, here is a letter which will have much to say to us about being thankful. And as we go through the first half of this book, hopefully we will see something of why Paul can encourage us to be thankful in all things. And in simple terms, it is this. This is what he's going to tell us. He's going to say, understand the magnitude of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our incorporation into it. Understood them, understand the magnitude of the gospel that you have been drawn into. You see, it's all about the gospel. Now tonight, we're going to look at verses 3 to 8 of chapter 1. And then tomorrow morning, we will look at verses 9 to 14, where we'll see Paul praying, and his prayer will instruct us in how we should pray, but also in how, what we should long for. 
And tomorrow evening we will study verses 15 to 23 and see the glorious things which are said about Christ who qualifies us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We will see that we should be joyfully thankful to the Father because of who Christ is in creation and reconciliation. And then on Sunday morning we will consider 2 verses 6 and 7 where we're encouraged to keep going. Well, tonight we will see some of Paul's example of thankfulness and prayer. And what we're going to see from verses three to eight is this. And Paul says, this is the purpose of the passage, learn from and imitate Paul's thankfulness by seeing the wonder of the glorious gospel. Learn from and imitate Paul's thankfulness by seeing the wonder of the glorious gospel. And so firstly tonight, learn from and imitate Paul's thankfulness. In the verses three to eight is just one sentence in the original. And the main thing is there at the beginning. This is the main thing. We always give thanks. Paul says when he comes to prayer, he always gives thanks. And what we have here is a report of Paul's prayer. And it's not a report of Paul's individual prayer. You see how it begins. We always give thanks. This is probably including at least Timothy who wrote the letter with Paul, but probably others who were with him as well. They gathered together and they always gave thanks to God. You see, the normal pattern in prayer for Paul was to give thanks and it was to give thanks for the Colossian Christians. And don't miss the significance of this, of Paul saying we always give thanks Do you remember what Paul says in another letter about sinful humanity? Do you think about Romans 1 and verse 21, where Paul says, sinful humanity neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. And yet now, here is Paul demonstrating that he now rightly relates to God as he gives thanks to God, doing what humanity always should have been doing. He gives thanks to God. God who you can see is described further as the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, we can skip over these things really easily. And yet for a Jew to have written those words is really significant. You see, Jesus is being placed on a par with God. You see, God is defined as the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's just a little pointer to the significance for which we will give thanks. Now we are to give thanks for the gospel and the gospel is all about Jesus and his father, our God. We'll see why that is so much uh, so true tomorrow as we look at verses 15 to 20. But we see here Paul saying, we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is not just a formality. I wonder whether you feel like me when you're in a group of people praying and you're praying for, for each other, it becomes a little bit of a formula, doesn't it? When we pray for somebody, we say, uh, Father, I thank you for John, and then we say something about them, or I thank you for Jean. It's not that it's wrong to do that, but it becomes just a little bit of a formula. It's the thing that you say when you start a prayer. And yet Paul's thanks here is not a formula. And Paul gives thanks now to God for his work in the world. And in particular, he's giving thanks for the work of God in the lives of these Colossians. And so when Paul prays, he gives thanks for these Colossian Christians. And he gives thanks for these people, a genuine, heartfelt thanks for them. You see, for Paul, people are the most important things to give thanks for. Not just uh, circumstances or creation, but people. 
And notice Paul always gives thanks. And here is a, a response in thanks, genuine and real, that can be given despite the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Paul writes this when he was in prison. And yet here is a genuine and heartfelt thanks which he expresses. And this is thankfulness expressed even when life is not going swimmingly, uh, when things are difficult. Paul here gives genuine heartfelt thanks for the Colossians. And Paul writes this not just for historical detail. No, we are being invited to join with Paul at this point. Invited to join with him in his thankfulness to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for his work in other people. Well, if we're going to join with Paul in this thankfulness, we need to understand more of the reason Paul gives thanks. And we need to understand more of the glorious gospel. And that's our second point. Learn to imitate Paul's thankfulness by seeing the wonder of the glorious gospel. You see what Paul gives thanks for? Paul gives thanks for these Colossian believers because he has heard of their lives being changed. Uh, Look at the change which has come about in them. Uh, Verse four, uh, because we have heard of your faith. Now Paul's heard that these Colossian Christians are now have faith. They have faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, This is something uh, which is new for them. A total life change. They now have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ here is not just a surname. This is the title. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. The Christ is the one who would save. And as Paul says in Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And here are Gentiles who have heard the gospel message and now they have faith in Christ. They're putting their trust in Jesus. The one who is sovereign over all things. They put their trust in Christ who died on the cross to make peace for all people. You see, their hopes and their dreams are now found in Jesus and they lean upon him. And so Paul gives thanks for them for that. And Paul then says he also gives thanks because he's heard of their love for all the saints. You see it again there in verse 4. You see, it's not just a change has happened in their head. It's not just that they're speaking differently. These Colossians are actually loving each other and all the saints. Their faith is seen in how they act now. They've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness, a kingdom characterized by selfishness, into the kingdom of his son, and so they love. They have love for all the saints, all Christians, It's quite remarkable really, isn't it? These Christians now have a new love. They love both Jews and Gentile saints. They've been transformed. And so Paul gives thanks for that. And both this love and their faith spring from the hope that is stored up for them in heaven. And you see that in verse five. The faith and love that springs from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. You see, they have this faith in Jesus and the love for all the saints because of hope. And this hope is the gospel. You see what Paul says. That they have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel. You see, Paul says, about, you see what Paul says about this hope. The hope which is the basis of their changed lives. 
And the rest of the verse helps us to see exactly what that hope looks like. Look at verse five again. The faith and love that springs from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel. It's the word of truth, the gospel that speaks of hope. Verse six, this gospel has come to them. The Colossians heard of the gospel. And verse six goes on. We see that the gospel did not just come to them. Now these words are just remarkable. Look at verse six. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all its truth. You see, the hope which produced such a change in them has been doing that all over the world, says Paul. The gospel has been bearing fruit and growing all over the world. And what it's been doing all over the world, it did when it came to Colossae as Epaphras brought that message. It produced faith and love. But just see how Paul describes what the gospel is doing. Now look at verse six again. All over this world, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Now at this point, let me draw your mind back to where everything started in Genesis 1. Do you remember in Genesis 1, God creates the world. And as the pinnacle of that creation, he creates Adam and Eve. And do you remember what he says to Adam and Eve when he creates them? He gives them the command to be fruitful and multiply. And can you hear the echo of the words that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing all over the world? Be fruitful and multiply. You see, God wanted Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply so that the blessing and life that he had blessed them with would then be spread to other people. And wonderfully, when you read Genesis 1 and 2, you see that picture, a picture of Adam and Eve in this relationship with God, which is wonderful and beautiful and amazing. Now that purpose was destroyed by human rebellion and sinfulness. And yet God's purpose was still the same. Now when you read through Genesis, you get to chapter 12 and you see God say he was going to send a seed who would bless all people. The seed who ultimately will come to Christ, who would be that seed, who would bring blessing and life to all people. You see, God was still wanting blessing and life to be multiplied to people all over the world. He wanted it to spread into the whole of the world. And here in Colossians 1, we see blessing and life that comes to the Colossian believers. And it came as they heard the gospel. The gospel about Jesus Christ, who is sovereign in creation and in reconciliation. It came in Christ, who is putting the world back together, if you like putting the world back together just as God had promised. And because of the Lord Jesus, the gospel is bearing fruit and multiplying. And Paul gives thanks that it was being fruitful and multiplying among the Colossian believers. Can you just start to see how big the gospel is? The gospel has been God's plan ever since he created the world. And as that gospel came to the Colossians, they were incorporated into that, just as we are. And look how the gospel growth took place, because this is equally quite startling, I think. It came to them, verse 7, as they learned it from Epaphras, 
our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Do you see the way the gospel multiplies and grows? It does that as people tell other people the gospel. I wonder, how did you become a Christian? You see, I think for everybody becomes a Christian as somebody else tells them the gospel. And so I think about my own life. There's a whole complex of people who shared the gospel with me, but primarily I think of my mum and dad who shared the gospel with me. The gospel which started bearing fruit and growing in my life. Just a, let me deviate, just a small digression here. We should never despise biological growth of the kingdom. Now, so if you're a parent here, you do a very significant thing when you share the gospel with your children, when you teach it to them. You are drawing them into this thing which has been happening since the creation of the world. So don't despise that task. You see, I learned the gospel from my parents and I think if you trace it back then, you look at my dad who learned it from his youth group leaders. And my mum, you trace it back, she learned it from her parents. And I think you can trace it back to say she learned it from, they learned it from their parents. I don't know much further back than my great-grandparents, but can you see, if you traced it back, I wonder whether we would get to somebody who was in Colossae who could say, I learned it from Epaphras. Who could say, I learned it from Paul. And as you share the gospel with other people, you're drawing people into this thing. You see, the gospel is huge. Can you begin to see the enormity of the gospel which Paul gives thanks for working in the Colossians' lives? Can you see the enormity of what happens when you put your faith in Christ Jesus and when a Christian starts to be turned outwards towards other people and love them? The enormity of hearing of, a hope, of hope renewed in a kingdom to come. And can you see that here is God's plan for all time being worked out in our lives? Do you know the gospel is the dominant force in the world? Do you know, if you can imagine world history as, as a river with lots of tributaries and a main stream, the main stream, the raging torrent in the middle would be the gospel. It's always been there from the start and there's lots of things which feed into that and there's tributaries which come off that at different times and yet it's the mainstream of the gospel which is bearing fruit and multiplying as it has been doing in the lives of the Colossian Christians, as it does now in our churches, and as it does in the world. And see, as somebody told you the gospel, you were incorporated into this, and as you tell other people the gospel, then you are part of God's stupendous plan of salvation to spread blessing and life in the world. And if that's not something to be excited about and to give thanks to God for, and I don't know what is. Well, we're going to pray in a minute, but let me read just another quote from Jonathan Edwards on these lines. He says this, but is there anything which Christians can find in heaven or earth so worthy to be objects of their admiration and love? their earnest and longing desires, their hope and their rejoicing and their fervent zeal 
as those things that are held forth to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. With those around you, it'd be good to pray in response to that, wouldn't it? Maybe with three or four people around you to pray, to give thanks to God for the gospel, the gospel which was bearing fruit in all the world and as it still is doing. Maybe giving thanks for those who told you that or for those that you know who have come to faith in Christ. You can maybe pray for uh, this weekend as well. So just with uh, those around you for uh, four or five minutes, we're going to pray now.